Yeah, that was something else. Uh, but I do want to share, so Joel introduced me pretty well, so now you all should know who I am. But I do want to share that some of us have been having a really hard time sort of getting out of character. <laughs> because, like, Josh said to the ministry this morning that he got a chai tea latte first thing this morning, because that's what it's all about. So I don't have a hard time moving in and out of character. It's easy. Um, don't worry about us. That's not how we normally do D group. Um, that wasn't like some actual D group that we were just showing you guys. So was, uh, we were messing with you. So, um, but it was it's it's great to be a part of the guys D group and just you know sometimes we are like that where we're just like oh it's all good but we we get heartsy too. Um, but why don't we why don't we say a prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I'm just so grateful for this opportunity to be here with this family. I'm so grateful for the banquet. It was encouraging. It was fun. Uh, everybody did a great job, Lord, and they just demonstrated servant's heart as a family. I uh, thank you for all those who worked really hard to make that happen. I thank you for those who came out, and just that we can continue to be filled up with each other's love and just your love, God, uh, as we go into this sermon. I pray that it can be powerful and impactful, that we can understand your love even better than before and show it to the world and be a light to the world. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Joel asked me to do the sermon, I think a couple weeks ago, and he sent me a nice little um, you know, list of things, like these are the options that you can do. And one of them was enduring love, God's enduring love. And that stood out to me right away because, um, because I'm a history major. I studied history at the University of Minnesota, yeah. and it's a good school. Joel, really, he's really proud of it. Um, <laughs> and I can't top Joel's jokes, so don't expect me to because those are excellent. And that video was amazing. <laughs> I was like, man, we should just do this every week. Um, but I, went, I studied history there, and I've always loved history. You know, in high school, I was obsessed with ancient Rome, and then Napoleon Bonaparte, and Poland, and I, I get a little bit obsessed, but one of the things I've always been obsessed with is the history of God's love. And, well, not always. When I, after I became a Christian, I became obsessed with it. And, uh, and I'm passionate about history. I just love it. And that's why I chose this, this topic, because I feel that without the history of God's love, Everything else that we talk about is ultimately meaningless because how do we know that we can trust him? How do we know that he's going to love us in the future? Um, and so let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 15. We're going to start way back. We're going to have a little history lesson here. Genesis chapter 15. And I don't, I'm not using PowerPoint today um, because it confuses me and I get distracted. So uh, hopefully you guys can follow along and just turn as we go. So Genesis chapter 15, um, I would love to read the whole chapter, but we're not going to, in verse 7. So basically what happens in verse 1 through 6, God comes to Abraham, his name is Abram at this point, and he says, he says Abram, all those promises I gave you before, trust me, they're going to happen. And then in verse 7, Abram says, and he said to him, I am the Lord, now this is God talking, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So Abram was from Iraq, actually, southern Iraq, and he goes to Israel, which is quite, it's like a several months journey through the desert and all this, it's pretty intense. And he says, I brought, the Lord says, I brought you out of there. And he said, but he said, oh Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? Because Abraham was just living on the land. He didn't actually possess it. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, that's a cow, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 
So this seems pretty bizarre at first. So let's keep reading. Let's jump down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt, the great river, the river Euphrates. So God makes a covenant with Abram. And the whole thing about the, the animals, it, the Bible says elsewhere that this is, a, this is how you make a covenant. You pass through the dead animals, and you're basically saying, if I don't keep this promise, let me be like these dead animals. I will be cut in half. And that's what God is saying about himself. It's amazing. God is saying, if I don't keep my promises, I'll just be split in two. And we know God has not been split in two, so he has kept his promises. And these are, these are covenants where it's the most binding relationship you can think of. I mean, in Malachi 3, a marriage is a covenant. There's covenants between kings and their subjects. Um, there's co- this is a, a thing of history. It's all over the ancient world. The people made covenants with each other to establish relationships. And so, so God makes all these promises to Abraham. He promises him numerous offspring and land for his offspring. And he promises to rescue his children from Egypt when they go there. And so God establishes his relationship with his people through Abraham. And in God's case, he cannot lie. Right? He never lies. That's what the Bible says numerous times, and it becomes clear as we study out the history. God does not lie. He fulfills his promises eventually. But I want to tell you guys a story uh, about me and how I'm not like God. Um, when I was younger, I was, so my grandpa, he has a really awesome place in northern Minnesota on the lake, and he bought us BB guns. And he's like, guys, I want you to shoot these guns, but you have to be responsible with them. And we were so excited, and I have three brothers, and so two of my brothers, my younger ones, were like, well, Grayson, let's go shoot the guns. And I was like, okay, yeah, I want to shoot them too. So I, but I don't know, like, we have to ask permission. Because I was old enough to realize you can't just do whatever you want when you're 10. And so I was like, Grandpa, can we shoot the guns? And he's like, yes, but here's the conditions. You have, you need to be in charge. Your brothers have to listen to you, and you need to be responsible. So you're not going to shoot anything other than the targets. You're not going to shoot at any people. You're not going to shoot at any animals. And you're not going to shoot any, like, houses or each other. <laughs> Which is a temptation when you're younger like that. Your brothers make you mad. I don't know if anybody has brothers, but man, you can get really mad at them. And so, so we go out, and we're, we're really excited, and we got the guns. And at first, so we set up these, these uh, gallon jugs of water, because it's really cool when you shoot it, and you just see the water coming out, and you're like, yeah, I'm the best. So we're shooting, and we're just putting holes all in these things. And they're pretty far away, actually, so that was awesome. We're good shots. And... And my brother, my youngest brother, Logan, who was really little at the time, I want to say he was seven, six or seven, and he had a gun. You don't give a six-year-old a gun. I don't know. (laughs) And he sees the neighbor's light fixture because they had their driveway and had these lamp posts. And he just, and I wasn't looking. I was like reloading my gun or something. And he just, bang, just shoots a thing. It just shatters. And I was like, what was that? I'm in trouble. And I was like, who did that? Logan was like, I shot it. And I was like, Logan, no, you cannot do this. And Logan looks at my other younger brother, Dalton, and he goes, Dalton, I bet you can't do it. And Dalton was like, oh, yeah? And he shoots another one. And I was like, guys, I'm in trouble. I'm in so much trouble. And Dalton goes, oh, yeah, Grayson? Well, I bet you can't do it. And I was like, oh, yeah? (laughs) And I just took out another one. And so my grandpa found out, because the neighbors, of course, were like, uh, and these are good friends of my grandpa. And they, they were like, uh, yeah, your, your grandkids just destroyed our lights. And, <laughs> and I had to write an apology letter, which I hate doing. Like, I'm prideful, and I don't want to write letters to people apologizing. Like, come on, and I was 10, so I didn't even know how to write hardly. And I'm just like, do I really have to do this? And he's like, yeah, because you broke your promise. 
So this is, this is not a covenant relationship, but it illustrates how we're not really like God. God always keeps his, his covenants. Let's go to Deuteronomy, okay? So God chooses Abraham, and then through Abraham and through that promise that he made to Abraham, God chooses again to his people, okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you could turn there to verse 6. And I just love Deuteronomy. It's full of God's promises and also commandments for us for how we can walk in and stay faithful to his promises in our end of the deal. But in verse 6 it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So in the ancient world it was commonly thought that every god had their own city and their own people. So the god of Babylon was Marduk. And because Babylon was very strong, people thought Marduk must be the strongest god. Um, and it's just from nation to nation. Every nation had their own god. And God says, I am your god. And you didn't pick me. I picked you. And he says, I chose you out of all the people on the face of the earth. God could, god could have picked the Chinese. He said, no, I'm going to pick the Israelites. And it says in verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So God says, I chose you not because you were the biggest, baddest dudes on the block. I chose you because you were the most pathetic. And I'm going to make you into something special. Because I love you. Because I swore an oath to Abraham that I would choose his people. And that's exactly what God does. And he says, I proved it by bringing you out of Egypt, which at the time was hands down the most powerful nation in the world. And he says, I destroyed them for you. I chose you because you were weak. You know, I play a lot of basketball because I'm tall, because I was blessed with those genes, and it makes it easy for me. And so I'm playing basketball, right? And people always want me to be a captain because, I don't know, because I'm tall. So what they usually do, a lot of times people will pick the two tallest guys and say, you're captains, that way we can't be on the same team. And they have us pick players. And you can imagine you have a row of guys, and you're trying to pick the best guys, right? That's not how we normally do it. Like, who's the best player? I want him. But imagine that you're standing there, and you're the best player in the world, and you're playing against some great players, and you're saying, you know what? I'm going to pick the worst dude out there. I'm going to pick the guy who dribbles like this. And just kind of like, it's like, what is he doing? But I'm going to pick him because he's terrible, and he's short, and he can't shoot, and he doesn't do anything right. I'm going to pick that guy. And then we're going to play, and he's going to blow it. He's going to blow it royally every time, and I'm going to keep picking him every single game. That's what God's love is like for the Israelites. And I'll give you the most powerful biblical example I can think of. In the book of Hosea, let's actually turn there because I just, it's amazing. There it is. I'm having trouble finding it, so forgive me. Okay, Hosea chapter 1. Okay, verse 2. So basically, to set it up, it just says the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. So God picks this guy, Hosea, and says, you're going to be my prophet to the people, and you're going to tell them 
my rules, my law, and also how I feel. God is communicating how he feels. And look in verse 2. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so God says, okay, Hosea, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be a living picture of my relationship with Israel. And you're going to go marry a prostitute. And you're going to marry her, and you're, going to, you're not going to argue about it. You're just going to do it, because that's what I did. I married a prostitute. And so they have some children. They're married for a while. And then she goes back to her prostitution. And she ends up getting so far into her prostitution that in chapter 3, she's actually being sold as a slave because she basically is someone else's property somehow, even though she's married to Hosea. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. That's a really weird line. Um, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the prostitute or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So God says to Hosea, listen, I know your wife has hurt you constantly by going out and selling herself as a prostitute. And now she's being sold into slavery, and I want you to go and buy her back. And so Hosea, you can picture him, he's gathering up pretty much all that he has. Because this is actually a really expensive transaction. Um, I forget what the amount is, but he... He brought pretty much all the wheat that someone at that time could have. He brings it all, his barley, everything, and he says, I want to buy her back. And that's what God is like with his people. God is saying, this is what it's like for me. You constantly go out and you play the prostitute, and I constantly buy you back. I constantly show you my love again and again and again. It's amazing how God loves his people. And, you know, I know for me, there was a time in my life where I was very much like Hosea towards God. Or no, not Hosea, Gomer, his wife. And I was, uh, I was a senior in high school. I just graduated. I use this story all the time because it's just awful what I was doing. And I just graduated, and I, sports were gone in my life, and I loved sports. I was big into sports, and they had become somewhat of an idol. Definitely, they were an idol in my life. And so what happened was I didn't know what to do anymore because I became a disciple when I was 16. And I was 18, and I ran out of sports. So they had become an idol. I didn't know what to do. So I gained about 70 pounds in like three months. Um, I just laid around and ate ice cream all day. And I didn't read my Bible. I didn't pray, hardly ever. And I was involved in sexual immorality and all sorts of horrible things. And God started sending people to my house. A brother named David De Los Santos, another one named Neville McKinney. And they would just show up all the time. And I lived like almost an hour away from where they lived. And they would just drive out there and be like, Grayson, what's up, man? What are you doing? And I'd be like, just watching the office. That's all I do. And, and then sometimes they would sit down and watch with me. But a lot of times, like, dude, let's go read our Bibles. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. And that was God calling to me, saying, Grayson, return to me because I love you, even though you have committed adultery against me. And I had made other gods in my life, especially myself. I was the biggest God in my life. And God says, I, I still love you, and I want you to come back. That's how God treats us as his people. It's also how he treats us as individuals. And I'm so grateful for those guys because I started to get involved with the campus ministry because I was a senior. I was going to the University of Minnesota the next 
fall, and I started to step up and started to just grow back into my faith because I was this close, guys, to just walking away from God altogether because I was like, this stinks, I hate this, I can't do this, I just want to quit. And God just kept sending his people until I came back. And that's what God does with Hosea. He just sends her, he sends him over and over again. Go get your wife. Go get her again. You know, she did it again. Go get her. It's like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with this woman? She just refuses to love Hosea, even though he is the most loving dude you can find. And that's the same way with God. Sometimes we refuse to love him, even though he constantly shows his love to us. Against all odds. I mean, would we... If I was married, no, I'm not. But if I was, and my wife became a prostitute, the odds of me staying married to her are extremely slim. <laughs> and God is like, no, that's what I do. That's who I am. Isaiah 65, 2 says that all day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people. God is just, he's just constantly just, please come back to me. You know, but, you know, there, there, this question comes up, like, how, do, how did we become part of God's promises? How did we become one of his people? Because... As far as I know, maybe some of us are, but most of us are not Israelites by, the, by descendant. We're not Jews. And how did we become part of this? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. Okay, so this whole time we've been talking about covenant. We've been talking about promises that God has made. These are amazing promises. And how is God going to fulfill all these promises? And we have an advantage that the Israelites did not. We know how God fulfilled his promises. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. So it says, uh, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time. So Paul is describing how people normally make promises, how they make plans. They go, you know, I could do this, but I, maybe not. And he's saying, I don't make plans according to the flesh like I used to, where I say, you know, how I feel about it is going to dictate what I do. No, nope, let's keep reading. He makes plans. He says in verse 18, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul wants to remind them God is faithful, and that's exactly how I'm trying to be towards you. God is a faithful. His love is enduring. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So how do we become part of God's people? It's through Jesus. How does God fulfill all his promises? Through Jesus. But does this mean that, you know, I, we usually say God loves everybody, and I agree. But I want to show you guys something, okay? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11, we're going to start there. Is God's love the same for all people? It's actually an interesting question because remember, God said, I chose the Israelites. He didn't choose the Chinese or the Americans or anyone else. He said, I chose the Israelites. He showed his special love to them. They became his treasured possession. 
And he promised that through them he would bless all people. And that's why we're here, through Jesus. He, God fulfilled his promises. But in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, you non-Israelites, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Before Jesus, Gentiles had no hope. We could not be a part of God's promises. We were separated from him. We were alienated from him. And we were not his bride, right? The Bible speaks about the church is God's bride. But we weren't his bride before we were in Christ. And so we didn't have his special love. You know, I love Joel Pede. He's a good guy. He's a good brother. Um, but I love Ivy more, to be honest. <laughs> now, I'm not married to Ivy, so I don't know what it's like to be married. But I'm telling you what, I bet it's a little bit more intense than your love for everybody else. And that's what God is saying. My love for my people is more intense. But look in verse 13. This is amazing. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So before Jesus, we were God's enemies. The Bible says this over and over. Before we're in Jesus, through our faith in him, through repentance and submission to his lordship and through our baptism, we were God's enemies. And we were separated from the covenant, alienated from Israel. But God has always been faithful to his promises. And his promise was that he would bring all peoples to him. And the way he did that is through Jesus. And so through Jesus, we get to be a part of the enduring love of God that has endured for thousands of years from the beginning of creation, billions of years, who knows how long, forever. You know, we may blow it as God's children, but if we're on his team, we get to share in the rewards. If we're on his team, we don't even have to be that good of players. Although we strive to be the best we can be, we don't have to be that good. I'll give you an example. Zaza Pachulia, okay? This guy is just not good. He plays for the Golden State Warriors. Does he still play for them? Does he, back he still plays for the Warriors. He's a starter. What on earth? That team is way better than him. And he's on that team. But for a while, if I recall, or maybe it wasn't Zaza. It was Verjao. He was on the Cavs as well. So he was on the, Golden, or the Cleveland Cavaliers and then on the Golden State Warriors. And so those two teams played each other in championships. And for some ridiculous reason, Verizal would get, a, would get a, um, a, a ring no matter who won. Like if the Cavaliers, which is the team he was not on, won, he was going to get a championship ring. And if the Golden State Warriors won, he was going to get a championship ring. It's ridiculous. I was like so annoyed by that. What, do I get a championship ring? I'm not on either team. No, I don't get anything. Well, you're just a fan. Well, whatever. He's just, he's just a bench warmer. And they gave this dude a ring. Well, the Warriors won, and that was the team he was on. He got a ring. But he would have got one if the Cavs won. That's not how God works, to be honest. Not because he doesn't love all people, because his special love is for his church. His special love is for his bride, his children. You know, the prodigal son. You think about the prodigal son. This is a guy who's in his father's house. He's receiving the benefits of that. And he says, Father, give me my inheritance. I'm done with this. And he leaves, and he squanders it. And he's not really a part of the family anymore. He's separated from it. But when he comes back, the father welcomes him with open arms. Welcome. This is my son. He was lost, and now he's found. The people outside of this family, outside of God's family, are lost. And God wants to find them. He wants to bring them in. He's constantly seeking them out. But his special love, his inheritance, and everything that he has is only for those in the family. 
And that's the reality of the scriptures. And if you disagree, I'd love to talk to you about it after. Um, but you know, how do we fill ourselves up with this enduring love, this covenant faithfulness of God? You know, because sometimes you can talk about stuff like this and it's like, hey, what do I do? Let's go to Psalms. So Psalm 135 and 136 are both amazing. We're just going to focus on Psalm 136. So starting in verse 1, I'll let you guys get there. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. He says this over and over. If you read this psalm, you'll be blown away. That's pretty much the only thing he says. God's love endures forever. Well, you know, I've had this conversation with my girlfriend recently. I said, how do you know the sun's going to rise tomorrow? Um, and she doesn't know how she knows. But it's because it always happens in the past. And there's actually this, okay, I'm not going to get into all of this, but there's a problem logically with knowing whether or not that's true. Because it's called the problem of induction. Look it up some other time. But we trust that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. But we actually have less reason, logically, to trust that than to trust in God's promises and to trust in his love for us. And yet we never doubt that. What right do we have to doubt God's love for us, especially since we are in his family? What right do we have? None. None at all. And this is how we know, okay? Verse 4 through 9, we're not going to read it all, but verse 4 through 9, he basically says God created everything, and that shows his steadfast love. And then in verse 10 through 16, he focuses in on God's people, and he says, God rescued us out of Egypt, and that shows his steadfast love for us, that it endures forever. And then verse 17 through 22, he says, God drove out our enemies before us. So God gave us, he fulfilled his promise to give us the land that we were promised through Abraham, so his steadfast love endures forever. And this is over a period of like a thousand years that all these things are happening, and God is constantly working through history to show his love for his people. And then in verse 23, okay, it says, It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love's love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. God's love endures forever, and it is so evident by how he treats his people, by how he keeps all of his promises. And through Jesus, we know that all of his promises are true. When God says, I'm going to resurrect my people, we know through Jesus that that is true, and we should trust in those things. And so I want to encourage you guys, if you want to be filled up with the steadfast love, enduring love of God, you need to read psalms like this. You need to meditate on them. You need to pray these prayers. God, when I think about what all you've done for your church, and for your people, I am blown away by your steadfast love. And I think it's also valuable sometimes to just think about what has God done for you in your life? Because I guarantee you God has done something for every single one of us to show his love to us. God rescued me out of my sin through Jesus. And I was in a lot of sin. And I was only 16. Some of us, we wait till we're 28. Okay, we get more sin. We just keep accruing. <laughs> That's what I was doing. I was, I was becoming more and more depraved, and God showed his love for me 
by rescuing me. And so I know that his love endures for me, even when I am at my darkest, even when my estate is low, when I am weak. But God's love for his church is never ceasing. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? Okay, 1 John chapter 4. Basically, what we want to do is we want to, we want to be filled up with God's love and overflow with that to the world around us. In 1 John chapter 4, okay, it says, verse 19, It says, we love because he first loved us. Our response to God's love should always be to love back. I mean, imagine, again, going back to the example of Hosea, why does his wife not love him the way that he loves her? That's craziness. She should realize, this guy is amazing. He keeps giving all his money away to try to bring me back, even though I have been acting like a prostitute. That's God's love for us, and so we need to return that sort of love to Him. And one of the most important ways we show our love for God is obedience, by the way. Just wanna, because sometimes people, they, I just need to show God the same feelings that I, no, obedience to His covenant, faithfulness to His promises, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, it says, For Christ's love compels us. We are compelled to love Him back. But in verse 20, let's keep reading, okay? So first of all, we need to love God the way that he loves us. We can't give up on God because God never gives up on us. As a matter of fact, we have no reason to give up on God. That would, that's ridiculous. And I was there at one point in my life, and I'm telling you, it's ridiculous when you really think about it. But in verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. If I'm going to sit here and tell you that I love God and I don't love God's church a lot, there's something wrong. I do not love God. That would be like, like honestly, like me telling the Moose family, I love you guys, and then just beating up Connor every day. <laughs> I don't know if I can take Caleb yet, but I, I can beat up Connor. It's just beating him, like, you know what? I love you guys. Let me go punch your son. What is that about? And God feels the same way. He's like, why don't you show, if you claim to have love for me, why don't you show that love to my people, my children, my bride? It's ridiculous to do anything other than that. And if you, do, if you don't love his family, you're a liar. You claim to love him. And our love needs to be different than that of the world. The world claims to love people forever, right? They're, I love you forever. I, and they swear these vows at weddings, and then they go and get divorced. Now, the Bible does give us an allowance for that, and I'm not going to go into that because it's not my place. But there, there is a time and a place for divorce, but... That shouldn't be our first option. I really do believe that. But even just in our relationships with each other, how do we treat each other? Do we treat each other with enduring love, just like God treats us? Or do we go, you know what, they hurt my feelings, I'm done. Because God's feelings are deeper than ours. And he gets hurt every day. And every day, his mercies are new. Every single morning, God shows new love to us. It's unceasing. It's amazing. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, okay, this is the, the classic passage on love. And I would encourage you to memorize this whole chapter. It's actually pretty easy to memorize. Do it. It's amazing. 
And it makes you love people because you're like, wow, okay, love is patient. I have to be patient? All right, I'll do that. Verse 7, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The, the word here um, is a verb. It's not a passive thing where you're just kind of enduring passively and people are just beating you up and you're just taking it. No, it's actually an active thing where you're actively enduring in love. And so the, the example that comes to mind is, of course, Jesus at the cross. He didn't just go there passively and just let them do it. It was more so that he chose to let them do that because he loved them so much and he loved us so much. He wanted us to be a part of his family so that he could show his special love to us and make us his treasured possession. And that's what we are. You know, an example, I didn't ask if I could have their permission to speak about this, but there's some people I know, okay? This is an example of enduring love. And they were, they were actually um, kicked out of the church. They told, you don't come around here anymore because this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because you don't have big enough dreams for our taste. So the leaders sat them down and said, you don't have big enough dreams for us, so you need to stop coming. And they just kept coming. They were like, well, who cares what you think? We love you and we love God, so we'll be there. And they were like, don't give contributions. And they were like, no, we're going to give our contribution to the poor then. How's that feel? <laughs> and it, it wasn't a spiteful thing, though. It was a loving thing. Because it's like, at the end of the day, these people wrong. I mean, if, I was, if Joel came to me tomorrow and said, Grayson, your dreams aren't big enough, you're fired, I would be like, man, I'm out of this place. Like, that's just, that's hurtful. You know, how about you just help me to have a bigger dream? You don't need to kick me out. <laughs> and and they, they wronged them, and yet they just chose to love anyways. And how do we treat each other when we're wronged? Do we endure all things? Do we choose to love them more? When we wrong God, guess what he does? Let me show you my love. It's amazing. And this is the sort of love that we need to have. So when we understand God's enduring love for his people through thousands of years, think about that. I'm like 24, thousands of years. 20, one year of faithful love to God is hard for me. One day, one minute. In God's thousands of years, since the beginning of time, God has shown his love to his people and to us. And we need to respond in kind. And when we understand that, we will overflow with love and enduring love to each other, to God, to the lost, to everyone, and we will endure in love. But I want to turn our eyes now to the cross because all of this is a conversation that is centered around the cross and how God has fulfilled his promises through Jesus at the cross and, of course, the resurrection as well. But the cross, God said, listen, you were far away. You weren't a part of my family, and I want to bring you near. So Jesus died so that we could be a part of his family and be a part of his covenant. And that's a blessing that we don't deserve, but we receive it anyways. And so as we reflect on communion, as we take communion here, let's just think about God's enduring love to his family. Let's reflect on how God showed his promises to be absolutely, utterly true. There can be no doubt. And we need to just, we need to dwell on that. We need to be filled up with that. And as we take communion, think about the cross and how Jesus showed his enduring love for us. And that while we were still sinners, he died for us.